If you were to reflect over the course of your life and think of the many meals that you have eaten over the course of that time, how many stick out to you as just really being just especially significant meals? I mean, we've all eaten good food, but for the most part, most of the meals that we consume, we forget about, right? If you were to ask me what I had for lunch on Tuesday, I'm probably not going to be able to tell you. In fact, I'm trying to think even just now. I don't know what I ate for lunch on Tuesday. Even just if you asked me what I had for lunch just yesterday, I could tell you, but I had to think about it for a minute. Right? We eat food, and we, eat, we have meals every day, right? We go through them, but they don't all stick in our minds. But there are certain exceptional meals that do stick out, right? I remember the first time I had gourmet duck. That was an incredible meal. I just could not believe all the flavors that were bursting as I was putting this food into my mouth. Or another time, the, the delight of there's a, there's a steakhouse down in Bardstown, Kentucky that serves some peanut butter cheesecake. And it is incredible. It is just absolutely delicious. Now, my taste buds have changed since I had COVID, and uh, peanut butter has been one of those tastes that haven't quite, so I'm afraid that if I try to have that piece, it, it just won't taste the same. But, but I remember it, and I remember the delight in the, and it, just eating and just being just incredibly uh, amazed at the flavors that was going on inside of my mouth. But that's not the majority of our meals, right? Most of our meals, we eat them, and we go on with our lives, and we forget about what we ate. We just go on. And yet, even through that, those meals, that food, nourishes us. And it keeps us alive. It feeds our bodies. I like to think that it's similar to that as it is with sermons. You know, sometimes sermons can bemoan the fact that, or uh, uh, pastors can bemoan the fact that, that people don't remember their sermons, right? It's like, I put all this work in this sermon, y'all can't even remember it for a single week. I have a secret for you. I don't even remember most of my sermons beyond a couple of weeks, even though I've put so much time into studying and, and learning. If, if you were to ask me about it, I have to think about for a moment, okay, now what, what, was, I, what was going on there? Uh, if, if you were to ask about a particular uh, passage from uh, maybe the book of Philippians, and we covered Philippians a while back, if, if you were to ask me, oh, what did you think about this passage of Philippians? I probably have to go and refer to my notes to think in particular about what I thought about that particular text in that moment. And yet, even though we cannot remember every single sermon, just like our mundane meals, those sermons nourish us spiritually. They feed our souls. They nourish us in ways that, that we can't even identify always how it impacts us and how it impacts our thinking. And yet, exposure to God's Word nourishes us and it feeds us. This is part of the reason why it's so important to be part of a local church and to be attending church regularly and being hearing God's Word on a regular basis, that we may have the nourishment of God's Word on a regular basis. But even so, just like with a few exceptional meals, I think of that gourmet duck or something of that nature, in my life experience, I can recall a, a small handful of sermons where I do remember 
the particulars of that sermon. And I do remember the impact that that message had upon my life. One particular sermon within my life that really stands out to me as having just an outsized impact upon me is a sermon that my pastor from Chicago, his name is Pastor Bob Sheridan, he preached this sermon when I was in high school. And the sermon was titled, The Three Chairs. And I intend to preach my version of that sermon today. Now, I just want to preface this time by letting you know that I have never once preached a sermon that wasn't my own. I, I have used outlines from other individuals in the past. I've always acknowledged that reality, and I've always also adapted them, but I've always developed my own content for those sermons. I consider that an ethical responsibility of a pastor to develop original sermons. But today is a little bit unique, and for the first time today, I'm going to be presenting a sermon that is not entirely original with me. Now, the question might be, well, why? Why would you do that? Well, this sermon had such a profound impact upon my life, and it changed so much about the way I thought about things, even at that time, even as I was a high school student in Chicago. And it changed the way I I thought about so many aspects in my life that I want to share the content of this sermon with you today in hopes that it may have a similar impact upon you. This sermon remains challenging even for me within my own life. I don't, I don't present it as saying, oh, I've mastered this material and now I'm giving it to you to master as well. No, it's, I'm preaching this to myself just as much as I am to anyone else. To give credit where credit is due, again, I heard this sermon from pa- Pastor Bob Sheridan in Chicago. And when he preached this sermon, he was transparent that it was not original with him either. He got it from another preacher, and when I was in Chicago this past September, I asked my pastor if he would give me the notes for this sermon, and he graciously did so. He sent a copy of that, and though I got his notes, and I, his, his notes were really more in outline format, and so as I began to work it out and develop it out myself, though I am using concepts and an outline and all those things that have been developed by someone else, There's still a lot of kinship chase within this sermon. I did develop things and and make some tweaks that this this sermon really is mine. It really does flow from my heart today, even if all the content is not original with me. So this is the three chairs. Everyone sits in one of three chairs. So often, these three chairs are represented by three successive generations. The first generation might be fully sold out to the Lord, wholly committed unto Him. The second generation introduces compromise and hypocrisy. And then the third generation lives in a state of conflict with the things of the Lord. And in our time together today, we're going to consider these three chairs, and illustrate them with different characters from the Scriptures, beginning with Joshua. If you would open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 24, this is the end of the book of Joshua, the end of Joshua's life. We spent time in the book of Judges earlier this year, well, or, aha, 
I can't say that anymore. Last year, when we spent time in the book of Judges, well, Joshua would be like the prequel to the book of Judges, establishing how the people got into the land of Israel. God had powerfully brought the people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, led them through the wilderness, performed many signs and wonders, and brought them into the promised land. And yet, even through that process, there were periods of rebellion amongst the people. So they had to wander in that wilderness for 40 years before they got in. But finally, there's the time where they entered into the promised land. They went in and they conquered the land with the leadership of Joshua in place. And now we come to the end of Joshua's life. And Joshua, he knows that his time upon this earth is short. And he anticipates the moment when he will no longer be with them. So he issues one final challenge to the people. We're going to pick things up in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. And this is after Joshua had recounted their history, all the the mighty things that God had done, how God had had conquered the the gods, the false gods of Egypt, the false gods of the the people of the land into which they, they came into. And now he says this, Now therefore, verse 14, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your sight to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fa- that your fathers served beyond the, in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We see in this text Joshua's commitment to the Lord. We would say that he is a first chair individual. He is sold out to the Lord. He has seen all that God has done, and He has seen the mighty works that God has done to bring them out of Egypt, to establish them in the land. And He is not interested in playing games. He is not interested in syncretism, of of blending different religious things together. No, His commitment is to the one true God and to serving Him. His focus is on the Lord, and He intends to lead not only His own life in this way, but to lead His whole household in the same manner, that His whole household would serve the Lord. So not only is He challenging, not only is He seeking to live this way Himself, but He wants to challenge others to do likewise. He says, put away these foreign idols, and the people are going to respond. They're going to say, okay, yes, we will serve the Lord. You're right, Joshua. The Lord is the one true God, and we will serve Him. And Joshua says, no, 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 no. You're not going to be able to do it. I've seen how you live. I've seen what you've done in the past, and you're going to, you're going to chase after these foreign idols again. The people double down. They say, no, no, we will serve the Lord. And so Joshua 
is going to issue, reissue the challenge once again, skipping down to verse 23. And so he said, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. When we think about the history of what the Israelites went through and how God powerfully brought them out, and this remarkable reality that there were that Joshua had to issue this challenge. He, he had to tell them, put away the foreign gods because they were worshiping foreign gods. Even in the midst of conquering the land, even in the midst of moving in where God was powerfully establishing them in the land, they were already bringing in the false pagan idols and beginning to worship them alongside of the one true God. Joshua says, stop. Enough is enough. No more playing games. If you're going to serve the Lord, put those things away. So here's Joshua, committed to the Lord, calling others to do the same. He is that first chair individual. Flip with me a couple of pages over to the book of Judges now. now We we spent time in the book of Judges, so I'm not going to dwell too long here. But but here in the first couple of chapters of the book of Judges, immediately after the death of Joshua, we find compromise in the people. Again, we covered this passage just a couple of months ago, so we're not going to linger here. Well, we find that the people, they didn't do what was right, even in their first encounter, in the first paragraph where they have Adonai Bezek, and, and they don't treat him as God demanded the enemies of the Lord to be treated in the law. But they treated him according to the Canaanite practices. As we go on through the chapter, we see that the people did not fully drive out the people within the land that God has said to drive out, but they allowed them to remain in the lands. Compromising on what God had commanded. And so in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we find this description. Verse 6, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel each went to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. In these two verses, we see the first two chairs represented. It says, the people served God all the days of Joshua. He issued them the command. He issued them the charge. Choose this day whom you will serve. And they said, we will serve the Lord. It says, they also served the Lord all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. And yet, the elders represent second chair. Because even though there was a level of commitment here, there's not the same level represented by the family of Joshua. He was under the elders' watch that the compromises that we saw in chapter 1 unfold. 
It was under the elder's watch. The angel of the Lord eventually would say in, in, in chapter 2, at the beginning of chapter 2, you have not obeyed my voice. You have not driven out those that I said to drive out. You're compromising on what God has told you to do. The elders' generation was a generation that introduced compromise. Yes, they gave a nod to the Lord, but ultimately they did not live wholeheartedly unto Him. They are second chair individuals. The third chair individuals can be found just a couple of verses later. Judges 2 verse 10, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers as the generation of the elders. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. And this is the third chair. They do not know the Lord. Indeed, their lives are going to be characterized by conflict with the one true God. And, and we walk through the book of Judges, so we know what follows here, right? We know the cycles of sin, that downward spiral that's going to unfold as the people continue to rebel. God rescues them, but then they rebel once again. We know that they are going to be judged over and over by their God for their continual rebellion and the depravity that's going to be on display, especially as you get to the end of the book. We know what these people are like. The people worship false gods. They engage in all sorts of evil practices and they are judged by their God. Third chair, individuals. One way that we can think about this, this concept is to think about where where the focus of an individual is. Is the focus on God and everything that He has said? That might be a first chair individual. But then the generation that begins to introduce the compromise. It, yes, there's, there is a focus on God, but, but there's also me in the mix. I've got, I got to think about myself here too. I'm going to live according to my own way at times. So there is a God focus, but then a me focus. A God and me, a me and God focus. Second chair. Or is the focus entirely upon myself? In fact, it's all about numero uno, right? It's all about me. Third chair. We can il illustrate this further by considering Abraham. Abraham was a man called out by God, out of his land to go into a land that he would show him. And the text says that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Eventually, he comes to the land of Bethel, and the first thing that he does when he gets there is build an altar to his God. God had made a covenant with Abraham, and he builds this altar. He worships the Lord. Well, as he begins to dwell within the land, there's needs, of course, the physical reality. So he builds, he digs a well to supply the needs of his family. Now, we know that Abraham is not a perfect man, right? He did not do everything correctly. 
He lies about the identity of his wife when he is in situations where he fears for his wife, for his life. He, I said wife. He fears for his life, and he calls her his sister, a half-truth. We know that he tried to fulfill God's promise through the means of the flesh with Hagar. So we know that being a first-chair individual does not necessarily mean that you're perfect, right? But it does mean that there's a level of commitment within that individual's life that shows that they are sold out to the Lord, that He is willing to sacrifice even His own Son, the Son of promise that God said, through the Son I will make of you a great nation, and God says, now kill that Son on His altar to me. And Abraham, in a great display of faith, is willing to do that. And the book of Hebrews says he did so because he considered that God was even to raise his son from the dead. Tremendous faith. Tremendous commitment. Tremendous obedience to the word of the Lord. First chair, individual. Later comes his son, Isaac. Isaac travels around some like his father Abraham did, and he committed some of the same sins that Abraham did as well. But there are indications within the text that he is even less focused on his God than his father was. He eventually returns to some of the same places where Abraham had been, but instead of first building an altar to the Lord, he digs wells first. And then later, he will build an altar to the Lord. And one might say that that doesn't sound like, like a big deal, okay? You, you got to have water to drink, right? But we can identify that and say, you know, that's a, that's a subtle shift that has begun to take place. Isaac does not appear to be completely sold out to his God, to be wholeheartedly devoted to him. There is a God and me, a me and God focus rather than just the Lord. And so we see that he fails to raise his children in a godly way. Isaac and Rebekah, they both play favorites with their, with their children, and it creates strife between them. God also reveals that it is going to be through Jacob that the, that the line through which God intends to fulfill his promise would be, and he's going to accomplish his purposes through Jacob. And yet, Isaac was fully prepared to give the blessing to Esau. Instead of Jacob. Second chair choices. Later comes Jacob. Jacob, his very name means supplanter or thief. And he's going to live up to that name, isn't he? He steals his brother's birthrights for a bowl of soup. He swindles his brother out of that, and he steals his brother's identity in order to steal the blessing from his father. Later on in his life, he's going to physically wrestle with the angel of the Lord in a way that that can almost represent his whole life of wrestling with God. Constant conflict, both with God and with others. Everywhere Jacob went, there was conflict with his brother, with his uncle, with all these different individuals, constant conflicts. And yes, God used him and was accomplishing his purposes through him, and it is through the line of Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. We have the 12 tribes that came about. But his life 
was not marked by faith, but rather conflict. Conflict with others, conflict with his God. Jacob is an individual that seems to be very much focused upon himself and his own well-being, making decisions, thinking about himself. It's all about me. Jacob, we could say, represents a third chair individual. Well, we have the life of David in Scripture as well. David was a mere shepherd boy whom God used to defeat the Philistines. He was described as a man after God's own heart. What a description, right? Wrote many of the Psalms, just pouring out his heart to God. And again, not a perfect man, right? I mean, this dude committed sins that we would blush to think about. Adultery, murder, and other such things. But, and yet, even in the midst of that, his life was marked by genuine repentance. In the Psalms that he composed, he expresses, we read some of this morning, the, the joy that he experiences when he's trusting in God and God delivers him from his troubles. But then also he expresses his repentance to the Lord when he sins against his God. When he is confronted by his sin, he repents and he turns away from that sin and he seeks to do what is right moving forward. He has a desire to build a temple for the Lord and that that desire is praised by the Lord, even if he didn't get the opportunity to do that himself. But it demonstrated his upward focus unto his God. He's focused on the Lord. First chair individual. His son, Solomon. Solomon began well. He did build that temple to the Lord, right? Magnificent temple, unrivaled in the history of the world. But he began to introduce compromise into his life. Scripture says he multiplied wives and concubines for the sake of political treaties. And these women came to him and brought their false idols with him. And I'm going to read from... 1 Kings chapter 11, it's going to be up on the screen for us. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as his father had been. The text speaks of some of the gods that he had adopted. Astros, the goddess of the Sidonians, worship that includes child sacrifice. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord. Compromise, blending, not wholly devoted. Second chair, individual. His son was Rehoboam. When Solomon died, he left Rehoboam, and Rehoboam assumed the throne, and Rehoboam sought ways to solidify his power over the people. 
And so he had counselors to him to suggest that, you know, Solomon had been kind of tough in some places. He had a lot of taxes as he's building the temple, and so he was pretty heavy and hard upon the people. You know, if you were to ease the tax burden just a little bit, the people would love you so much, and they would follow you forever. But then there were the other counselors and these other individuals that came along and whispered in his ear and said, you know, if you go soft, you're going to lose the respect of the people, and they will never follow you. No, what you need to do is make things even harder upon them. And so he becomes a tyrant, and he says, and this is his words, he says, my father's yoke was heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. Not only was he a tyrant, but he led the people away into further idolatry. And they worshipped false gods once again. Third chair. As we think about these three chairs, we could summarize these in a variety of ways. We can think of the first chair as being marked by conviction. These are individuals, they love their God. They, the examples I've given today, they were from the Old Testament. That there's, there's some New Testament language that, that, that speaks to this reality. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 uses the word spiritual to describe these individuals. They, they, they are sold out to the Lord. They, they have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, and they are wholly committed unto Him. The first chair is marked by their commitment to the Lord. They gladly serve Him. When the Bible gives instructions, even if it is painful to obey, they obey because God has said so. They see God at work within their lives. They can identify answered prayers and and how God has moved powerfully within their lives. And again, they aren't perfect by any means as individuals. But when they find themselves in sin, they repent and turn to the Lord for forgiveness and restoration. Their faith isn't a hypothetical idea that maybe God would do something. No, their faith is based in truths of Scripture that's lived out within their lives. Skipping down to the third chair. The third chair is marked by conflicts and condemnation before God. These individuals do not know Christ. Their focus is on the gods of this world. They are focused on living how and and however they just however they want, however whatever they think is right, whatever they think is best. They don't care what God has to say. They have fully bought into the lies of the culture. First Corinthians chapter two, verse fourteen says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. This describes the third chair. No interest in the things of the Lord. They do not know God or His works. If there is any kind of church attendance, it's usually at churches that exist more for the sake of entertainment than edification and building up of the saints. There's no transformation. There's no power and there's no desire for it. We think of these things as successive generations. We think, how does this happen? 
When there's, when there's the first generation that's wholly sold out to the Lord, and then there's the next generation, there's, there's drift that begins to be experienced. Then the third generation, even as we think of the chairs, how does it happen where that drift carries on? Think of the third chair. So often they arrive there because they're sitting next to the second chair. They see the compromise. They see the hypocrisy. And they want nothing to do with that. They say, you know, maybe you want to be fake. Maybe you want to play games. But I'm not interested in playing the games. And so they turn their back on that second chair and the first chair. And they live life their own way. These individuals need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to know that Jesus Christ came into this world to save them from their sin. They need to know that unless they repent, they will spend an eternity apart from the glorious presence of God. And they need to know that second chair living is not what God has designed or desires for His children. And that there is tremendous blessing in being wholly committed unto the Lord. The second chair is one that many who would call themselves Christians today would likely fall into this category. These are individuals who perhaps have made a confession or a profession of faith in Christ, but their lives are clearly not in line with what the Scripture says about how they are to be living. There's compromise and hypocrisy. Sure, they go through the motions just like the spiritual or the committed individual does, but deep down inside there is a lack of giving themselves wholly unto the Lord. So sure, they attend church. They get baptized. They partake of communion. Seldom do they read the Scriptures on their own. Seldom is their time spent before the Lord in prayer. And when they do pray, there seems to be very little power in it. When it comes to making big decisions, they they cannot act with certainty on what they know Scripture says because they do not know the Scriptures well enough. So they're forced to rely upon the opinions of other believers around them instead of seeking the Lord Himself. Now, it's not wrong to get counsel from other believers. But if that's the basis and not the Word of God, that reveals something. These individuals may be willing to overlook sin in those around them, and they may be comfortable with media that glorifies what God hates, and they display patterns of sin that are unaddressed within their lives. Paul might call such believers carnal in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. They, they profess Christ, but they're acting fleshly. They're they're acting like a natural person. They're acting, they're living according to the flesh and not according to the word of the Lord. And part of what makes the second chair so dangerous is not only the spiritual harm that's being brought upon that individual themselves, but with the next generation, they see the hypocrisy, they see the compromise, and they conclude that the God of the second chair is no more powerful than Santa Claus and exists in nothing more than to make you feel good and maybe curb your behavior, but in the end, is imaginary. 
They see that there is no power, so they don't pretend like they perceive the second chair to be doing. Second chair living is dangerous and harmful. And I think of what Jesus said to the lukewarm church in Revelation chapter 3, where he says, I wish that you were either cold or hot, but since you're lukewarm, I'm spewing you out of my mouth. Hot water is useful. Cold water is useful. Lukewarm water is revolting. God is not pleased with second chair living. He's not interested in having nominal Christians. God just doesn't just care about where we are on a Sunday morning, but he, but he cares about where our heart is all the rest of the week long. Brothers and sisters, this is not what I want for us as Pillar Fellowship. This is not what I want for you as individuals. This is not what I want for my own life. And so the challenge that I have for us this morning, the question that we each need to reckon with today is what chair am I sitting in? So we want to comfort ourselves and say, okay, you know, I'm in the first chair. I'm good. I've got it. I'm there. But are we? The thing about our spot in these chairs is that we can move even perhaps without realizing it. The the shifts can be subtle. The Scripture tells us that that he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. If we just assume that, no, 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 I'm a first-chair individual, we're setting ourselves up for that slide. Just because you're in the first chair doesn't mean that you are going to remain there. Just because you're in the second or the third chair doesn't mean you have to stay there either. You can trust in Christ. You can take your faith seriously. I need you to know today I'm not standing here in judgment of anyone. I can't answer you. I can't, I can't look inside of your heart to know where you are with the Lord today. I can't do that. I don't have that kind of supervision. Like, my glasses aren't magical that way, <laughs> she says. <laughs> but we do need to seriously consider this and evaluate within our lives. Are there areas of my life where, you know, I, 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 I believe in the Lord and I'm trusting in Him and, and I want to get closer to the Lord, but... But are there areas of my life that's more consistent with second or third chair living than the first? Here we are. It's, it's January 1st. It's a new year, right? New year, new me, right? There's all the, the silly rhymes that people do every year. Uh, a new me in 2023, right? It's cheesy. We laugh about it. And it is laughable. Well, I'm not up here trying to plead with you to make New Year's resolutions, right? That's not what I'm trying to do. But we do have an opportunity to seriously consider something this day. To seriously consider if there are areas of our life that reveal that we're living as second chair individuals, living with compromise within our lives. As I've prepared these, this material today, and as I've looked into God's Word about these things, I don't stand up here pretending that I've got it all figured out myself in every area of my life either. 
There are specific things in my own life that I have in mind today that I would like to change, that I believe are things that have drifted, that I would like to pull back to first chair living. Even as I, as I desire that for my own life, I, I want, like with Josh, when he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what I want for my children. I, mean, I, I want them to grow up not choosing the third chair because they saw my compromise in the second chair. I want them to grow up choosing the first chair as well. I want them to grow up to see how God has worked powerfully in my life and for God to work powerfully in theirs as well. And that's what I want for your lives also. I want to see God work powerfully within your life. I want to see areas that, that need to be refined go through that refiner's fire that we may be first chair individuals. And so I challenge you with this today. If it, as you think and reflect within your own heart and your mind today, if there's something that, that's going through your mind that's like, you know, okay, there's, there's some areas of my life that I know and I'm aware of that need to be addressed. And if that's something I can help you with, I would love to have that conversation with you. I would love to, to pastor you and shepherd you in that way. So I hope you'll come and talk to me about those things. But I challenge you to think, what can you change in your life today they would move you closer to sitting squarely in that first chair. I started our announcement time this morning with just letting you know that there's Bible reading plans on the table back there. Do you have a regular habit of reading God's Word? That would be an excellent place to start. A Bible reading plan, not, not just a piece of paper with, with checkboxes, but a plan, how, when, etc. What about your prayer life? Do you have times of communion with your Lord where you go to Him and pour out your heart before Him? And even if you do sit here today and after examination and you conclude that you're in that first chair. Praise God, I rejoice about that. But we, again, we have the warning of Paul. He that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. So what steps can you take in the days and weeks ahead that will grow you in your walk with the Lord? And we sang that song, Higher Ground earlier, right? Lord, plant my feet on higher grain. May that be our aim. Lord, plant my feet, or maybe in this case, plant our seat <laughs> on higher ground. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, for these characters that you've given us. Lord, your word says that whatever was written before was written for our learning. It's written for our instruction, that they were examples for us. Lord, I pray that we would take these examples to heart. Lord, I pray for your forgiveness, Lord, if there are areas of our lives where we've been living as second-chair individuals, second-chair living, we've got compromise in our lives. Whatever that looks like, Lord, perhaps that is viewing things that we ought not to view, taking in media we ought not to be consuming. 
Perhaps that is just different lifestyle choices in different areas of our lives. Perhaps it is simply a neglect of that which we, we know we ought to be doing. Correct us in this, Lord. May we be people of repentance, for repentance is characteristic of first chair living. Lord, I pray that you would draw us close to you this day and every day. For your name and your glory's sake, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.